If you love how Dan Rather unravels amazing true stories, you got to check out Music's Greatest Mysteries. That podcast will really get you thinking. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. This magic moment. Aaron Neville, the music legend with the unforgettable voice. Everybody remarks on the uniqueness uh, of your voice. Medicine to me is like uh, people say, I, I wish I could tell you what your voice did for me, help me. I say, well, I wish I could tell you what it do for me, you know. And musical prodigy Troy Andrews, better known as Trombone Shorty, is breathing new life into old sound. My music is high for me. Like when I play music, it takes over my whole body. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm just in another place. Two proud sons of New Orleans, Aaron Neville and Trombone Shorty, on tonight's big interview. Listen to this. Everybody plays the fool sometimes. Aaron Neville has always stood out, a cool yet imposing figure. His face, with its distinctive mole and sword tattoo, is unmistakable. His body easily disguises his age, but it is his voice that is instantly recognizable. As a member of the Neville brothers, his unique sound brought him early fame and continued success as a solo artist. These days, he's wrapping up a world tour and heading to his hometown of New Orleans to close out the annual Jazz Fest, a family tradition. The Neville name is synonymous with New Orleans. You like New York? I love it, yeah. But New York City is now where he lays his hat. Well, walking around my neighborhood, it's like, uh, I like the diversity of it, you know. Writing poetry, and playing a pretty good game of pool. You know, that's pretty impressive to me. Aaron Neville's singing has been described as angelic and soulful, delicate and tormented. Much like his personal story, still, he remains humble soft-spoken, and lucky for us, he has a good sense of humor. You know, Aaron, I'm told that you don't like to do interviews. Oh, who said that? <laughs> so, who told you that? I thought in order to strike a solidarity, I'd wear my hat. <laughs> cool hat. Well, it was not much of a hat, not nearly as stylish as you Oh, be. man, this is, I like the style, yeah, but it's not. I like the style not... of that myself. Well, you won't take offense if I don't do this. No, no. There is a story 
Aaron Neville, now 73, is promoting his latest solo CD, My True Story, recorded with legends like Keith Richards, Don Was, and the Jive Five. And for all the journeys his music and his life have taken, this time he's gone back to his roots and where it all started, doo-wop music. For this album, you chose doo-wop in an era of pop music and hip-hop. Why? It's been something I've been wanting to do. Uh, like I tell people, if you listen at my music from day one, from Tell It Like It Is, you can hear doo-wop licking it. And kiss and the idea struck a chord with renowned producer and musician Don Was. When Don Was heard about me wanting to do the doo-wop, he said, oh, yes, indeed, man. And first thing he done was call Keith. Keith Richards? Well, he co-produced with Don Was my my true story. And he said what made him call Keith when he was producing Voodoo Lounge with the Stones, he was rooming underneath Keith, and Keith had this album on a loop over and over and over. And it was my true story about a Jive Five. <laughs> so when he asked Keith uh, would he be interested, Keith said, what took you so long, man? <laughs> it may seem like an unlikely pairing, but the Neville brothers and the Rolling Stones have a long history. But I've been knowing Keith for a long time. And, uh, my son Ivan played in his band, Expensive Winos. Um, the Nevels opened for the Stones back in 81. My brother Alton, the Meters opened with, toured with them, you know. And uh, through the years, we got to know each other. At their recent reunion, there was instant chemistry. We went in the studio with 12 songs, but we wound up cutting, recording uh, 23 in five days. Wow. So we still have some in the can for part two of My True Story. Growing up in segregated New Orleans in the 1940s, Neville was one of five children, raised in a close-knit family in public housing. In many ways, his true story comes from humble beginnings and a love of singing cowboys. Tell me about Gene Autry and Roy Rogers. <laughs> uh, well, I used to go to the movies and uh, see Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, and I'd come out the movie, and I'd, I was living in the Calio Projects in New Orleans. And I'd come back, I had a mop stick named Kimo Sabe, and I used to ride the mop stick and yodel along with, you know, Roy and, and the boys. I used to sing my way into the movies also. I sang for them and they let me in. Well, you know, that's something you and I share, that while I'm a good bit older than you, I grew up with Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't the music that got me, it was kind of the story, you know, the adventure. But with you... It, it was, was all of that, really, you know. Yeah, it was all of the story and it, the singing, but the singing was by me being a singer, you know. I didn't know I was a singer then. I know I wanted to sing and I could hold a note. <laughs> that was about it. You were born in New Orleans? Right. Born and raised in New Orleans. Tell me about the early years. You know, um, from one year old to 13, we lived in the Calio projects, and uh, back then they were, they were gr brand new projects, and it was the whole world to us, and me and my brothers and my sister, and uh, we had an oval parkway, we had a pavement, we could ride a bicycle or skate around, and we were like 
kind of sheltered from everything, you know, until we moved out when I was 13. That's when they hit me in the face. <laughs> well, I lived in New Orleans briefly during the very early 1960s, and it was still at that time a very segregated oh, yeah. city. Well, you know, I didn't let that affect me back in those days. Like I said, we were protected in, this, in the projects, and I didn't venture out too far, you know, until I got older, you know. But at that time, uh, the music was the whole thing. My brother Art had a doo-wop group, and they'd sit out on the park bench and sing harmonies at night. And I'd run up and try to sing with them. They'd get away from me, a kid, run me away from them, until they figured I could hold a note. And they let me sing with them, you know. I didn't care what else was going on in the world, as long as I could hit those notes with those guys, you know. That was, that was the stuff. The schools were segregated, strictly segregated oh, yeah. at that time. But you went to church school, you went to Catholic school. I went to St. Monica, yeah. You had to be aware then that there was deep racial prejudice and institutionalized racism. Well, we'd hear about it, you know, because I think some of the nuns mentioned that the, the Klan was like, you know, getting on them for teaching black kids and all that, you know. So it was some rough things to think about. While New Orleans was segregated at the time, music certainly was not. Neville drew early inspiration from all types of music, from doo-wop and hymnals to country and R&B, and from the artists with whom he's often compared, gospel singer Sam Cooke. I remember in 1954, I was 13 years old, the first time I heard Sam Cooke, and he came up with a song called Any Day. And, you know, before that, most of the gospel singers sang real hard and yelled and screamed and all, and Sam was just smooth, you know. So, oh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so I had somebody else to pattern behind. Uh, country music, you remember any country music favorites? Uh, the big Hank, Will Hank Williams fan, you know. Hey, good looking, what you got cooking? <laughs> that in a jambalaya and uh, lovesick blues and ever here, will sound too blue to cry and easy lost who will to live. I'm so lonesome I could cry. Some people think it's the best country music song ever written. I love his stuff. You know, I love the stuff today, but if I was to sing another, like do a country album, I'd like to do a trip to Hank Williams. Well, maybe you get to do that. Hey, we'll try to stick around. <laughs> so when did you start thinking about turning professional? Oh, well, I, I don't know about professional. I know I just wanted to sing, and that was the bottom line. I didn't care how. The first time I, I was able to sing in public was with my brother's arts band, the Hawkettes. And uh, I was on the stage, and the guitar player hit a riff, and I came up with a song that was recorded by Earl King called A Mother's Love. And, and Art turned around, you better finish it. <laughs> so I had to finish the song. That was my first. I said, oh, wow, I love this. And uh, it was on. It wouldn't be long before Neville had his first major hit, Tell It Like It Is, in 1967. My time is too expensive, and I'm not your little boy. Well, you have a distinctive voice. You have a unique voice. Thank you. 
From where does that come? Um, you know, it's hard to say. It's like, um, it's always the little kid in me, you know, the innocence. And when, mm -hmm. I'm, when I'm singing, I still feel like a teenager. What a wonderful thing. But everybody remarks on the uniqueness uh, of your voice. And somebody's described it as uh, beautiful and emotionally fragile. Do you agree with that? You I do. It's like, it's medicine to me. It's like uh, people say, I, I wish I could tell you what your voice did for me, help me. I say, well, I wish I could tell you what it do for me, you know, to be able to uh, share it and, you know, know somebody's listening and getting something out of it other than just a song. Tell it like it is I'm not there to play with it Don't remind yourself a tall woman I know You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Aaron Neville and Trombone Shorty. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guests are Aaron Neville and Trombone Shorty. For all of Aaron Neville's professional success, his personal life, was much more complicated. He had fallen into trouble with the law and was battling serious heroin addiction. He credits his late wife, Joelle, and music for saving him. And I don't know how much you want to talk about this, and I don't want to dwell on it, but you fell into trouble. Yeah. What kind of trouble? Um, me and, um, a couple of my friends, we used to joyride in people's cars, you know, but most of the time we'd bring them back and park them a few blocks away after we used them, and I got uh, caught for auto theft. Uh, done six months in the parish prison for that. So, you know, but I wrote a song later on, said, it took who I was and where I come from to make me who I am. So, here I am. And you got addicted at one point? Yeah. Tell me as much about that as you want to talk about. Well, it started out just, uh, what you call it, uh, inquisitive, you know. And I knew a couple of guys that was doing it, and I wanted to do it. So, you know, like some people say, well, I did it because uh, it, he, my parents done, and ain't nobody done that. I done what I wanted to do. And I got, at first it was cool, you know, until I found out that it wasn't a friend of mine, that it was the most, most ugliest thing you could run into. But that took a long time and some doing. Oh, yeah. To find that out. Uh, that your late wife, your previous your late wife. Yeah. That she eventually moved out with the four kids. Yep. One day I came home and it was gone. And I couldn't blame them, so, you know. Uh, like I said, it took all of that, you know. Make you wake up. So when and how did you wake up? And I just got tired of it, you know, it was running me. It's like, you know, the uh, ins and outs, the feeling bad and going through the withdrawals and all that. And I wanted to get out of it. And I finally had a chance to go to a rehab. And when I was gone, 
I was thinking about all the people I was leaving out on the streets. I said, wow, they can't go, you know. Right. I was feeling for them, and I prayed for them. So, and I said, thank God for letting me go. That was 1981. The Neville brothers had been on a roll. Aaron's vocals were often one of the highlights. Then, in 1984, at the New Orleans World's Fair, fate would intervene. That's when Linda Ronstadt came to Pete Fountain's club and she came to see us. Somebody told me she was in the audience and I dedicated a song to her and called up on stage and sang some doo-wop. And she later told the press that that was the highlights of our tour because she got to sing with her favorite singer and, and band. And uh, I asked for an autograph. She said, to Aaron Love, I'll sing with you anytime, any place, anywhere, in any key. And it took till 89, I think, this one got in the studio. And the rest is history. Look at this man, so blessed with inspiration. Look at this soul, still searching for salvation. I don't know much, but I know I love you. When I heard it, we both loved it, you know. And then we recorded it, and I told him, meet you at the Grammys. <laughs> and sure enough, we met at the Grammys with that song. It did indeed. They won Best Pop Duo in 1989 and would win again a year later. Their collaboration was history in the making. I recently interviewed her. Tell me about working with Linda. I think she's one of the greatest singers of all time. I tell her that all the time, you know, and to see that she said that she can't sing anymore. It just broke my heart, you know, because I was definitely trying to get her to do some, some more songs together. Yeah, she has this illness, and she told me she didn't think she'd ever be able to sing again. Yeah, well, I pray that she can. Well, on the subject of overcoming uh, illness and malady, uh, you have asthma? Yeah, I just deal with it, you know. It's like uh, a couple of times I wound up in the emergency room from either smoke or dust or whatever, you know, in the, in the place, but I haven't been having any breakouts lately, you know. And a long time ago, it was easy. I could just, you know, throw out a note with no effort whatsoever. Now I got to put effort, but I learned how to do it. Is that or is it not one of the reasons that you don't tour with your brothers all that much? I mean, that's one you, of the you have your own solo career, right? And I could, singing with the brothers. I couldn't do both, and it was time for me to, you know, like you say, you don't, you got. I say I got a long ways to go and a short time to make it in. I don't know how much time I have left. So I, I put in 35 years with the brothers and love them to death. And without them, I might not be where I'm not. So, you know, I give them all praise. And uh, it's, it's just what I have to do now, you know, for me. Neville has always been able to hold his own. His famed falsetto garners attention. Even among his famous peers. I want to talk about some of the people you've worked with. Uh, you worked with uh, Aretha Franklin? Mm -hmm. I'd done the Super Bowl with Aretha. <laughs> I remember I'd done this commercial called the Cotton Commercial. The touch, the feel of cotton. 
Aretha was in New Orleans at the Jazz Fest, and she was leaving out in the limo, and the limo stopped. It was like a commercial itself, you know. And the guy said, Mr. Franklin, would like to have a word with you. And I walked to the car, and the window came down, and she had to pull her shades down. Love that cotton commercial. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was good. I couldn't do them stand there and laugh. At a from superstar duets and Super Bowls to commercials and TV appearances, Neville's unique sound resonates from Bourbon Street to Sesame Street. And I also sang with Ernie on Sesame Street. Want to do that again? <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Yeah. No, I don't want to live on the moon. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Aaron Neville and Trombone Shorty. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guests are Aaron Neville and Trombone Shorty. There is a new sound coming out of New Orleans these days. A new sound with very old roots. The instrument is the distinctly unsexy trombone. But in the hands of 28-year-old Troy Andrews, better known as Trombone Shorty, it is one of the hippest sounds in American music today. You may not have heard of Trombone Shorty, but the biggest names in the music industry sure have. A child prodigy, he's been performing since he was old enough to hold a trombone. As a teen, he toured with his rock mentor, Lenny Kravitz, and has since collaborated with Prince, Dave Matthews Band, U2, and was even featured in the halftime show at this year's NBA All-Star Game in his hometown of New Orleans. You could spend thousands of words trying to describe Andrew's genre-busting sound, but hearing is believing. I sat down with him recently in New Orleans to hear about his eclectic musical inspirations and the city that shaped him. You play jazz. You have since you were a child. But is it fair to say you're a jazz musician? I've been raised playing jazz a little bit in the city. So uh, I think I'm just a musician at this point. You know, I've played different styles of music throughout my, throughout my life. I've played some country music with some, some of the best country people, Zach Brown, and I've played some rock music with Lenny Kravitz. And I've just been very blessed to be able to share the stage with different people and different styles of music here in the city also. It's like we have sub-genres of New Orleans music and I've been able to be placed 
in those type of situations and share the stage with some of the legendary musicians to be able to gather my information and gather my education to be able to sound the way I sound today. So for me, at a young age, I was placed in different music that sound different, so I just thought music was music, and I just was a horn player just playing. Andrew's musical education came early. At just 13 years old, he was playing alongside New Orleans jazz legend, Wynton Marsalis. He was also exploring the world of hip hop. New Orleans, after all, has always been a musical melting pot. To me, just being able to be placed there, everything sounded like a gumbo. Everything sounded like a gumbo. Yeah, just everything in once. So to be uh, young and to be that impressionable, everything just soaked in there. I've worked with Manny Fresh, who was a producer for Cash Money Records, which is hip hop. And I got introduced to all this music at a young age, so I was, I was here, here, and then. So everything just sounded like music to me. There was no boundaries in my ears. So whenever I perform, whenever I create, all of those experiences are coming with me. Let's get basic. What is jazz? Well, jazz to me, being in New Orleans, is more of uh, in a traditional sense where it started here is dance music. You know, people, even still to the day, the New Orleans jazz is about dancing. That's what jazz is to New Orleans. A lot of emotions, happy music, feel good, people are dancing and partying, you know, like it's Mardi Gras year round. You started playing the trombone at what age? Four. I, I, I played the trombone at four. I can only reach two or three positions. And, uh, and that's how I got the name, Trombone Shorty. It was much taller than me. And, uh, the trombone was much taller than you were at that age. Oh, yeah, by a lot. You know, well, I'm interested in that because you're not short. You're a reasonably tall man now, but you still go by Trombone Shorty. Yeah, it's just one of those things when you're in, you have a nickname for so long, it, it, it stays with me, you know. It, it's kind of it's kind of fun, you know. It's it's cool. Sometimes people are looking for a real short guy to come out on stage, and 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 it's and here I come. But it's it's okay. It's a fun name, you know. Everyone in New Orleans has a nickname. If you don't have a, a nickname, you're not a, a true New Orleanian yet. But everyone has a nickname. I did a show one time because of people we know people here and they know my real name, Troy Andrews, and I was booking the show a few years ago and they put Troy Andrews on the bill and not too many people showed up. You know, so it was just one of those things, I gotta stick with this name. Well, I wanna talk about your latest album with your band, mm -hmm. the Orleans Avenue Band. It's described, and I quote here, as a genre-bending, stylistically diverse album. Now, what musical genre would you put yourself in? Uh, that's a hard one to do. You know, if, if we had to put it into something, it would be probably funk rock with, with horns, but then we have these hip-hop elements in there, too. Maybe soul, I don't know, you know, and soul, you can hear everything in there. Well, how about New Orleans rock soul? There we go, New Orleans rock soul. That works. 
Well, I just call it New Orleans music to, but to, to someone out in Australia somewhere that never heard of it, it would probably be close to funk rock or something like that. But it's New Orleans in it because we have those horns that add a little hot sauce to it on top. Add a little hot sauce to it. Yeah. has the traditional jazz community responded to your branching out with other forms of music? Do you hear whispers or somebody say to you, hey bro, you sold out? Well, uh, I hear some whispers sometimes because it's a very traditional city and that music, we, we want to keep it around. So I've spent enough time in, the, in that community to where they know that I, I know the style, I've, I've studied, I've played and learned from some of the best that taught it to me. Uh, throughout my life, and there's always some whispers from some of the older musicians, you know, not telling me that I sold out, but they, some of them wish that I would have uh, taken the route of carrying on a tradition. But my mindset has always been, it's been done before, and I need to learn from that style of music and use all the tools that that type of music has given me to create my own style. So I wanted to take that path and create a new sound and maybe this will be traditional music in the next 50 years and some kids would be able to take what I'm doing and create their own thing. I just think the music stagnates if we just continue to create, recreate what someone else does. I mean, New Orleans is in me no matter what it is. If it's, if it's a Mardi Gras Indian thing, if it's a street parade, second line, all of that goes into my style of music and I'm just trying to find a way and bring in the music to a larger audience so they can come back and see where I got all my information from and how I grew to where I am now. I know you came here to move. Showing up tonight, so to show and prove. I know you feel so good when you're feeling the groove. And I can show you how it's done. But hold on, not so fast. You got the feeling, make the fire last. You want to feel it from me, I want to feel it from you. I say, what you gonna do? Or what you gonna do to me? The San Francisco Chronicle called Trombone Shorty New Orleans' brightest new star in a generation. And the Los Angeles Times has anointed him the heir to a legacy of Crescent City musical royalty. So many great musicians have come out of New Orleans, but now the torch has been passed to Andrews to serve as the city's unofficial musical ambassador. What makes New Orleans so distinctive? I think we can all agree, like it or not like it, not really care about it, almost everybody agrees, it's distinct. Yeah, it's very distinct. Being from here, it's kind of hard for me to explain it because we're in it, but when you come here, you just feel the love, you feel everybody, everybody's family oriented, everybody cares about whoever, we say hello to everybody, people take you in. I mean, we create some of our own language sometimes. We create our own food. We have, it's probably one of the only cities, maybe, maybe with the exception of two or three other cities in, in the United States that, have, that has its own style of music. And I don't really know what makes it that distinct because I'm here, but 
it's just something in the air, something in the people, the way we were raised. It's all about love, celebration of life, and, and we live that every day. Life is celebrated every day on the festive streets of New Orleans. Around the clock, the city is alive with its signature sounds. Pouring out of every club and bar is a piece of the Big Easy's rich cultural heritage. Sometimes the streets themselves become a showcase for all the talent that lives here. But of course, all this music, this life, had to be rebuilt after Hurricane Katrina. Andrews was just 19 years old when that storm hit. Tell me how that affected you. Did it affect your music, Katrina, and the years that followed where New Orleans had to fight to come back? Yeah, Katrina affected each and every one of us, you know. We were all, some of us were kids. We had to grow up really fast and, and do some things. It didn't affect my music. Uh, it just made it much stronger, you know, living in different places. And, and I think with Katrina happening, a lot of people that never, ever left New Orleans, some of them never even left their neighborhoods to see the rest of New Orleans. It forced all those people out, and they didn't realize how important the music was until they were living somewhere in Texas or New Mexico, wherever it may be, and they didn't get a brass band walking up the street of Mardi Gras Indians and things. So it was very powerful, and we realized how important the culture of the city was at that moment. When, when, when we're in it, sometimes we don't appreciate it because it's all we know. We think that it's like this everywhere. But when we got outside of it, when we were outside of our box, we realized how important the culture, the food, and everything was. And I think that brought a lot of people back. There were some who, lifelong New Orleanians, their hearts got ripped out of them. Yeah. Never, never wanted to come back to the city because they couldn't stand the sight of what happened to their dear city. And one of those, uh, Aaron Neville, mm -hmm. uh, he didn't come back to New Orleans. But you made a different decision, that you stayed here. Yeah. I stayed here and I wanted to be a part of the rebuilding process of the city and let them know that we're, we're not going down and we're going to stay strong and fight and, and bring this city back because this city means so much to the rest of the world also. And we have to continue to, as New Orleanians, to continue to do that. Aaron Neville on a different point, he's much older than me, so he's seen the city change a few times and I can see where it can be very hard for him to, to see things like that. The city that he once knew is no longer like that. For me, I was 18 and 19 years old, and, and I'm still growing and learning, so I felt like it was my responsibility to come back to the city that, that made me who I am and gave me everything that I, that I am today. How y'all feeling out there, New Orleans? Just in case anybody didn't know, my name is Trombone Shorty, right here from the Dream Aid neighborhood of New Orleans, yeah. Today, Troy Andrews is a musician in demand. He spent most of his life on the road, playing up to 200 shows a year. But New Orleans remains home. 
Last year, he started the Trombone Shorty Foundation. The foundation holds auditions for the most musically gifted public high school students in the city. And just know that in New Orleans, we have no musical boundaries, none. It gives them a chance to come here to Tulane University to fine tune their skills with professionals and college mentors. Professionalism is key. Be on time, know your music, and you're gonna be hired by different people that's gonna place you in all these types of situations. But the students also gain insights into the less talked about, but hugely important business side of the music industry. So you just gotta be able to listen and appreciate different styles because you never know, especially for me as a horn player, what type of situation I'll be put in. What's going on here in the class? Hello, everybody. The goal is to preserve the rich musical tradition of New Orleans and share it with future generations. And do you play an instrument? Or? I play trombone. Trombone? Yeah. Can't make with a trombone. Nobody does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody knows that's a dead end, right? <laughs> And I just wanted to be able to have an impact on the kids uh, and let them know that after school or after marching band that you can be a professional trumpet player or trombone player. It doesn't have to stop there. And I just wanted to have an impact on the city in a positive way if I can through music to help get some of these kids out of here, go to college and maybe come back and help, help some other kids. So if a kid or two out of this program go in and take it further, I've done my job. And that's, that's what the older musicians have done for me. And I want to make sure that I'm able to reach these kids and give them an opportunity. Like, I'll be up until 5 in the morning trying to get one scale or one note, and I won't go to sleep until I get it, you know. Andrews wants to instill in these kids the unique, only in New Orleans sounds of the city that shaped him. Tonight's musical guest is a group called Chawa, one of the many Mardi Gras Indian bands famed for their elaborate handmade suits, drums, and chanting. Three of the Trombone Shorty Academy students have joined the band to learn and play with them. It's the same kind of experience Andrews valued when he was a kid. You play a lot of instruments. I mean, you're known trombone shortly. Obviously, trombone is your home instrument. Mm -hmm. But I noticed you were playing the piano in front of the students before. Did you take lessons to learn how to play all these instruments? Well, I've taught myself the trombone, and then I had private lessons later on in life to, to get some technical things together. And I learned how to play the tuba for a while and drums. And I always got put into place to where whatever band I was in, we were always short a member. Or we might be short a trombone player, might be short a drummer. And I was always the kid that, that took the initiative to go and learn and, and try to play because I wanted the band to be full. Well, let's count them. How many instruments do you play? Oh, um, let me see. Piano, drums, uh, a little bit bass, uh, baritone, uh, horn, trumpet trombone. Well, right there, one would say, wow, do you think this is something that you inherited that is in your genes, or is it more the family and neighborhood and city environment? For me, 
it's all of that, but it's hard work. Like you can be blessed with a gift, but you have to uh, feed the gift and, and take it to another level. So for me, I've had all those, those environmental things and inheritance and different things like that, but I had to go put in a proper amount of work and still today to make that better. But you wouldn't be where you are now if you hadn't worked at it and you practiced long hours. Absolutely, I learned and seen in my life that natural talent can only take you so far. I've had family, family, friends around me that, that, that rely on natural talent and they didn't get as far. I mean, you can be like a genius and, and, and be able to do anything that you hear and play it right back. But for me, in order for me to go to the next level and be able to play on different platforms, I had to practice and I had to get the fundamentals together. So uh, still today, my teachers see me uh, and they'll still pull me to the side and say, let me hear your skills. You know, and, uh, and they'll call me and see me on TV and be like, nah, your embouchure was a little off on that. And I, that's how it's been my whole life, that they wanted me to be better than, than, than I was being at that moment. When you were in school, particularly when you reached uh, the difficult ages of, say, 12, 13, 14 in that period, did you find yourself saying to yourself, listen, I'm so good at music, I don't need to pay attention to math and algebra and these other school subjects? Oh, no, oh, no. I don't think I ever say that I'm a good musician because whatever I'm working on, it just keeps going further and further away. But in that process, I get a little better of trying to uh, practice to reach that. But math and English and everything, I had to do that because if I didn't do well in that, when I got home from school, my mom wouldn't let me play. You shut it down. She shut it down. Good rate. And she'll let the band practice without me, and I got to do my homework <laughs> while I can hear him. So she'd shut that down. No music unless you get this together, because she was like, the music thing can take off, or it might not take off, but there's education that you need to get over here besides the music. Andrews and his musical family grew up in the Treme neighborhood of New Orleans. Its rich history influenced both him and a recent HBO series by the same name. Treme is a block from the French Quarter. It's the oldest black neighborhood in America. And uh, jazz was created there. It's Congo Square, where the slaves were able to gather there every Sunday and, and do what they did in Africa and different things. And, and out of that celebration that they were able to do, Jazz was created with the African drums and African rhythms with the European instruments, tubas and trombones and different things like that. And then the rest is history. And Treme, um, the TV show, is basically, they like the name and it's about the entire city of New Orleans. You know, I think, I think saying Treme is better than saying the French Quarter or something like that for TV, but it's about the entire city. It's not necessarily about that neighborhood but it's about everything that happens all around. I have seen the program. You, you play yourself yeah. some of the time. Some of the time, yeah. I was able, yeah, they, it's crazy. They, they, they've developed a New Orleans type of way. I'll fly in town and I just got it. They'll find out that I'm in town and they'll deliver my script <laughs> at two in the morning. I have to be on a set at, at 6 a.m. You know, so it, it was fun. Sometimes they write me in as of real life. I'm never in town. I'm always traveling, so I show up every once in a while on the show. Bad teeth. Yeah, Joy, my man. 
Where you coming from? From the Portland Jazz Fest. Ah, uh, yeah, well, you know, this ain't no uh, jazz festival, even a club, but you know, pays the bills, bro. One of them clinic gigs, huh? Yeah. I feel the man, but hey, it's work. Hell yeah, it's work. Plus, people need to hear y'all coming through this airport, for real. Yeah. What songs of yours have become your own personal favorites? Oh, there's one that I wrote uh, entitled Hurricane Season. And uh, it's an instrumental song, and we have this part in it where it's head. That reminds me of when we're in New Orleans and we're at a second line parade, and that line goes and you have three or 4,000 people jumping in the air. And I kind of based one of the parts of that song off of that. That's become one of my favorites because it, it has, in the style of music that is created, it has my childhood of brass band type of music. It has my teenage years of this more funk rock thing. And it has my 20s of hip hop in it too. And, um, and we all put it into that one bowl and, and that's what it is. But it's one of my favorites. It's hard to play sometimes, but it, it's one of my favorites. played some very exciting venues. You look where you played, I just go up down the list, and you played some of the best venues in the world. What was your favorite? Right now, the highlight has to be the White House. I played there, and I was on stage with some of the great musicians, B.B. King, and Jeff Beck, and Mick Jagger, and I, like about a hundred of my dreams came true in one, one show. And I got to play for the President, Obama, and, and is uh, and the first lady, and I turned to my side, and there's Mick Jagger and BB King jamming out, and that that had to be like that was a dream. I, you know, I'm still pinching myself because I've looked up to all these great musicians my whole life, and I get to share it, and and learn from them on the stage and play and just watch. So it, 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 that's got to be my favorite venue. Andrews was invited to the all-star performance at the White House for a Black History Month celebration called Red, White, and Blues. He was a hit, cementing his reputation as a young musician on the rise. Well, you and I know, not just in music, but in many professions where you have that much travel, that much time on the road, that sometimes even the most talented people will succumb to liquor, drugs. How have you kept that from happening? You know, you get lonely, you're, you're away from everything that's, that's comfortable to you, and the road becomes home. But for me, I've never had the urge to smoke or drink. I've never been interested for some reason, and I've seen a lot of musicians diminish their talents from that because they couldn't control it, it controlled them, and I'm just not that type of person. I think my music is high for me. Like, when I play music, it takes over my whole body, and I'm, and I'm, I'm just in another place. But I've never been interested in that because I'm, I'm, I'm after something. 
I don't know what that something is, but I, I have to reach it and I have to continue to go and continue to want to be a better musician and I'm not there yet. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you thank for having me. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.